Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for coming to the show today. If you just listened to Susie Larson live, I bet you had a fantastic time on her show, as she always delivers. I'm looking forward to uh, my show today as well. Jim Wallace is going to join me in just a minute. But I want to read a little bit of Psalm 91 to get things started. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord... He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. Maybe you're in that kind of situation today where you need to dwell in the shelter of the Most High and rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Maybe you've had one of those hard days, and I know what those days are like, and maybe you need some rest. God says, come to me, and I will give you rest. And it's the kind of rest that he alone delivers, and I know that you will find rest when you go to him because he promises it. And I hope that if you are in a place of discomfort or crisis or stress today, that you can lean into God's comfort and love and you can know that he cares about your situation and every detail of your life and he loves you. And I just hope that you find comfort in that today. And that was Psalm 91. But I always go to when I think about dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, and resting in the shadow of the Almighty. So if you have not, by the way, signed up for the Faith Radio uh, Devo every day, we've got a devotion. It's really quite lovely. You can start each week with a moment of reflection and prayer with the Faith Radio Prayer Devotional email. You can sign up today at myfaithradio.com. So Jim is a regular guest on my show, and you probably know him uh, from being on the program, but he's also a Dateline-featured cold case homicide detective, and he's a best-selling author and national speaker. He's also a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He's an adjunct professor of apologetics at the Talbot School of Theology, and he has got uh, an amazing uh, ministry and, and an incredible mind, and I always love having him on. Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, well, thanks for having me. This is um, we typically talk about all kinds of theology and things like that. I'm glad to broaden our discussions whenever we can. Right? Yeah, for sure. I believe uh, we're going to hear today a little bit about um, life in the in the police world. Yeah, I, I think what's happened is we've you know we, we we do two things in our ministry. One is that we take a look at Christianity from the perspective of a detective because there are skills that you learn just you know, deception indicators, things like that you learned uh, doing that job that could actually be applied to the investigation of Christianity. And we post that stuff into three three uh, posts a week at our coldcasechristianity.com website. And, and a number of years ago, really amplified, I think, after um, the COVID year we had, um, 
we started to realize the importance of, of building something that's just the opposite of coldcasechristianity.com. In other mm-hmm. words, instead of looking at Christianity from a, the perspective of, of, of a detective, we decided to look at law enforcement from a Christian perspective and build a, some resources that maybe police officers could find. And, and really, you know, I always say this, that the gospel is the cure for every kind of stupid, including police stupid and cultural <laughs> stupid and every kind mm-hmm. of stupid you can think of. So, so I want to be able to, to lean in on that principle. And that's what we do at another website called the Thin Blue Life dot com. Mm-hmm. And, and so a lot of what we're doing, and it started for us, uh, Susie and I, just uh, by accident, really, we were serving with Operation Heal Our Patriots, which is for injured uh, military couples, and they come back after a severe injury, they're disabled, and then their marriages begin to suffer. And we started volunteering with that program, which is just really marriage resiliency training. And as we were volunteering with that, we, you know, BGA, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, began to shift its attention toward police officers. And then we started doing these retreats for officers. And I just really, you know, of course, we're aware of what's happening in culture. We're all watching it. And I spent 25 years in that profession. But when I got to hear what's happening today, um, it's it's it was eye opening and tragic, really. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm from a three generation law enforcement family. My my dad was there from 1961 until the 80s. I was there from the 80s until the 2000 teens, and then my son has been there for 11 years. Mm-hmm. And so we're in this agency and just watching culture shift and changing the way uh, law enforcement is perceived. And so I think that as I listened to to the couples that were coming up and what they had experienced, most of them, when they come to us, they've already suffered some trauma. They've sometimes been really critically injured on the job, uh, and now they're in recovery. Um, And so their marriages are sideways because they're just struggling, right? They're struggling under the trauma. Our job is to help them not just be resilient, but to help them thrive, you know, to help them have what we would call post-traumatic growth. How do we get from here to there? And it just opened my eyes to some of the issues that are facing the country. And I'm sure that's happening even there in Minneapolis. That's probably the epicenter of where the the, the most recent concern Mm -hmm. um, uh, occurred, right? Because all of us look at police misbehavior as kind of an excuse to, and we, we have a tendency to do this as a group anyway, we, we have a tendency to lump people into categories, and, and this is true for every one of us. So if, you, if you're going to lump people into a category because of the misbehavior of one or a handful, which we do all the time, <laughs> and this is just our nature, I call this, this is just otherism, we are, we are inclined to be attracted to people who are just like us. Opposites don't attract. The studies already demonstrate this. We are attracted to people who think like us, look like us, even look like our family members, have the same educational level, have the same interests. The studies continue to reveal this. But that means we reject people who aren't like us. And that is happening even in culture when it comes to police officers, right? So mm-hmm. so I think it's this is why a lot of our work now has has shifted. Uh, and it's, we're, we're helping more to kind of diagnose what's happening in culture What's happening in your city? What's happening with law enforcement nationwide? And uh, what we need to do about it? Because this is something my son observed, and I thought it was very insightful. He was telling me, you know, when when one officer misbehaves, it makes a dramatic impact on your city, your city council, your leadership, and the public. And it changes things. It's, It's immediately painfully obvious, and it changes the course of things right away. 
But what happens is if, if you start to take your foot off the gas as law enforcement, stop acting proactively. If you say, okay, now we've got limits, we can't do this, we can't do that, we're, we're not, no longer able to patrol and do proactive work, that impact on your community is not seen overnight. That impact takes 10, 15 years. And then suddenly you think to yourself, what happened to our community? And it was the you know, 10 or 15 years of just not um, performing in the way that people want us to perform. You know, we just had an election in Chicago and the mayor was overturned, was, you know, uh, she lost the election. And I'm sure the person who took her place is probably just has the exact same political outlook that she had, but the replacement candidate was pro-police. Mm. And that symbol, single difference right mm-hmm. now is, is what's going to help, I think, us turn the, the corner on this. Jim, when, when I hear questions raised like, can communities survive without police officers, I think uh, I can answer that question pretty quickly. What would you say? Well, I think that if you, uh, the polls continue to show this, that the people who most want uh, a police presence are the people, the law-abiding citizens who live in communities that are plagued by crime. And, and so if you ask the people who are in those communities, do, do you want us there? Um, they're going to say they, they already know what the alternative would be if we weren't there. And, and sometimes it feels like you have a, a, a group that is so influential in media, none of whom live in the neighborhoods that really desperately need a law enforcement presence, who are arguing for change or arguing for a reduction in numbers or doing whatever they're doing, kind of knowing or not knowing that if you reduce the numbers of law enforcement in the city at large, it's probably not going to affect your upper-end community, Mm -hmm. your upper-end neighborhood. But the people who need a police presence, by and large, will tell you that, yeah, we we want them here. With all their, their, their warts and pimples and blemishes, we still want them here. We all know that we can do a better job. Right. And, and here's the thing I, that gets me. I think that a Christian worldview explains why we see police misbehavior at, at times, because it, our view, you and I as Christians, is not that the system is corrupt and you basically good humans are being corrupted by this racist system in place. It's that you and I are by our very nature fallen, selfish people who are inclined to think more of ourselves than others. And we will corrupt any system you put in front of us. You could change the system. We'll just find a new way to kind of leverage it for our own good. That is the nature of humans. And so we know that we have to have checks and balances in place because we just assume up front that everyone we hire is going to be the same mess that everybody else is. Right? We all are inclined toward evil because that's our fallen nature. And I think that's part of what, uh, for me at least, kind of guides me as I'm thinking about, well, can we do a better job? Yep, we can. But it's not going to be by way of wholesale changes of systems because we – I don't care what system you've seen in the history of humans. We've always found a way to kill it, <laughs> a way to, to corrupt it. That's just our nature as humans. Mm-hmm. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. You can go to coldcasechristianity.com. If you have a question or comment for Jim – let me know. Text it over, 877-933-2484. We'll continue talking about uh, police and the thinbluelife.com. You can learn more about Jim's ministry there. We'll be right back. Oh, life can be filled with distractions. I saw a survey that said, The average person will look at their phone 320 times a day. 
This Lent, let's take a moment to step away from all the distractions and let's read the Bible together. You can start this wonderful program called Reading the Bible Together with Us, and you can learn how to better connect with God through His Word and through studying ancient disciplines practiced by Jesus Himself. You can sign up for this free study now at MyFaithRadio.com. Let's spend this season of Lent focusing on our Savior, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and what fuels our minds and our hearts to be more devoted followers of Jesus. Again, sign up for the free study now at MyFaithRadio.com. with Jim Wallace. You can learn more about him at coldcasechristianity.com, but he's also got a powerful ministry at the Thin Blue Life, the thinbluelife.com as well. We're talking about uh, police and do, do police still matter? Of course, the question is asked by many, and I know resoundingly I will say yes, and I would imagine, Jim, you are going to say that as well. You've got yes. part of a third generation <laughs> of police officers in your family, so... Your dad but, and look, yourself. It's not because it's, yeah, it's not because I think, well, you know, this is just, like, I started off as an artist. I have a bachelor's degree in the arts, and then I have a master's degree in architecture, and then I became, you know, um, a cop. But it's because I recognize that this truth that when I teach it, I get a lot of pushback, especially when I was teaching ethics to our agency years ago. I'm trying to encourage officers to raise the bar. We have a, an incredibly high ethical bar that we have to maintain, and here's why. Because it turns out that law enforcement is the one necessary profession upon which every other profession is contingent. Hmm. Look, there are lots of essential services, but there's none so essential as law enforcement. We are the foundation upon which everything else is built. You think, well, you know, you want to have a doctor in town? Doctors do good things, but you can't have a doctor in town unless he's secure enough to know he's not going to get robbed by his next patient. It turns out that before you can have anything in place, you have to have a police officer in place. You know, in the Wild West, you had volunteer firemen, but you had a paid sheriff. Mm-hmm. Because it turns out that that is the foundation. In our state, it turns out all county uh, sheriff's departments were founded at the same time when the state became a state. Because the first thing you have to do is get order in place, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that that means, though, that if you're the – we're the foundation. That means we're, we're, you, you walk on foundations. You, you don't – you take foundations for granted. It's not that that means you're going to get more respect. You're going to get less respect. You spit on foundations. You throw your trash on the ground. But if you're the ground upon which everything stands, you have to be super stable because if you aren't ethically stable, then the cracks develop. And then before long, the cracks in your foundation lead to cracks in your wall and cracks in your ceiling and the whole thing falls down. So I've just been trying to help officers see that this is not just any job. The upside is you're going to get a chance to serve in the one necessary profession the downside is you have to serve in the one necessary you know profession and that means you have to have a really an unparalleled uh, ethical ability given the fact that all of us are are mistake prone idiots who are humans who are are inclined toward making mistakes so so how do you balance that this is i'm getting to the point where i'm watching the culture and i'm thinking like no one should have to do this job um i think we sometimes think we understand what police officers do until you get the job and then you serve in it for two years and you realize I am seeing stuff every day 
that no one talks about. Like this hidden world that's out there that people don't, even in you see fictional movies and documentaries and series, like when you see it every day, you start to wonder, is this the way the world really is? Because you're only seeing the worst stuff. Mm-hmm. Or, or is it just that I'm isolating my experiences to this and it, it has an impact on how you see the world. You know, you have to start off. I start off every investigation with the premise that everyone here is a liar. Right. You would have to. That, yeah. That eventually leads me to somebody. So it's all about this. You know, I always say if the game is to interview people, to get data, to have a conversation with your friend over dinner, to just get data. Oh, what'd you do in your vacation? Oh, great. So you listen to him and he tells you and you kind of have that in your mind. If that's the game, well, then you play that one kind of way. But if the game is spot the lie, now you're listening in a different way. You're right. making certain presuppositions that are different and that's all we do every day is play this game of spot the lie that there's nothing imagine if you went to work every day knowing that pretty much everyone you're going to contact who's not a victim pretty much and sometimes victims too is going to try to lie to you and you got to figure out what they're lying about it's a weird job right that we oh, ask yeah. people to do and and we just don't think about the impact it has on people and that's why a lot of us retire to to less populated states out in the middle of nowhere on a hill with a big fence at the bottom of the hill, right? And a scope at the top of the driveway. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's unfortunately what happens because you just think, oh, this is a terrible world that we live in. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things we have to kind of help officers to get some balance back and realize, hey, because what's here's what happens is they think the community thinks you hire people in law enforcement who are ethically sideways or they have these views of people. And then they eventually behave poorly when, in fact, we have a really structured, difficult uh, hiring process that screens out those kinds of people. But if you do this job long enough, you're going to start to become that kind of person based on the influences of the world around you. So you hire this person who, for the most part, is, is, is sworn to duty and altruism and wants to sacrificially serve his community. And then 10 years later, he does something that you look at. You've turned him into something, and now you're going to fire him for what it is you turned him into. This is happening all over America because it's a job that is difficult to work, and we don't often rotate our officers, for example. You know, I've I've seen guys who have worked patrol 10 consecutive years. The officer in your city had worked patrol for how many consecutive years? Who in the world would leave an officer working in patrol that long? Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't leave an officer working sex crimes that long because it starts to warp your view of humans. We move those people out in three years because you, you you just need some balance. And we don't do this in patrol. And after five or six years, you're just worn out, pessimistic, and short-tempered. And it's not that you're a racist. You're just an otherist. You think everyone's a jerk. You think yeah. if you're not in it, if he's not in a uniform, he's a jerk because you're just so worn out. And I think that's part of, of the struggle for us. Um, and those of us who can try to manage this, and and it really helps if you have got a transcendent worldview that calls you to something else and gives you resources to help you find peace, well, that's going to help you be a better police officer. Mm. Jim, what kind of emotional energy do you have to go through every day being a patrol officer or just having whatever job you're assigned if you're encountering people who are not being honest with you and you're trying to parse the truth every day? Well, I always say it this way, working homicides is that that yeah, you could you could allow yourself to go through an emotional roller coaster, but that's not healthy. Mm-hmm. So what you have a tendency to do is just to find mechanisms by which you just do the job. But that means you're you're deadening yourself. Here's why I always say it this way: I have a very tight circle 
I maybe I've said that to you before too, Bill. I don't remember. I've repeated this many times. I love this, okay. by the way. That's yeah. I've got a tight circle yep. around the people for whom I'm willing to cry. Yeah, and I have to draw that in tight, and that helps me from not going on that roller coaster, mm-hmm. right? So your wife, so your kids, your dog, dog, not your cat, not the cat, right? <laughs> exactly. But if you know, if you look at that, they're inside the circle, and that means that the most horrific uh, victim you could think of, you think there's no way I can even look at this crime scene. Well, you can now because that's not somebody you're going to cry about anyway. Yeah. But that kind of mechanism that helps you to survive day to day, you, I, I need my Christian worldview to, to continually remind me that how wrong that is and, and to help me open up the circle. Because if you don't have that, the circle just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And the rules that guard the circle are tighter and tighter. And then before long, you're just not somebody anybody wants to be around. And it's like, I, I've seen it so many times, more so, I think in the generations that preceded me, or mm-hmm. maybe it's just because I see those folks are getting older, but, but I, I know that, that it's a, it's a challenge even for my son's generation. Yeah. Jim, does your uh, son, Jimmy come to you and say, dad, you, you can't believe what they're making us do now. Every single day Ooh, that's... on the way, on the way home. He'll drive wow. on the way home and he'll call me and he'll say, what happened today? <laughs> and he'll tell me the stuff that he's dealing with. I remember we're in Los Angeles County. We're mm-hmm. in a County that right now is is being led by a DA who has just decided that if he can't rewrite the laws, he can simply choose not to enforce them. And, and that's what he's doing. And so what we're seeing, for example, is um, the two mechanisms that you typically used to use to deal with um, certain situations. For example, if you legalize all drug possession so that unless you're possessing for sales, this is now a citable offense. It used to be you go to jail for some period of time. If I caught you with raw cocaine, now it's a, an offense that I can basically, it's a misdemeanor. I'm just going to cite you out. You're going to be back on the streets in two hours. So I don't have a mechanism anymore by which to um, to, to confine people who are using drugs. Mm-hmm. And we can argue about whether that's actually good or not. We can say, hey, you know what? There shouldn't be. No one should be in jail for drugs. Okay. We also don't have a mechanism by which we can deal with mental illness. You know, we don't have a place to put people. And we're actually, as a culture, less and less inclined to call anything mental illness. And and we don't want to, you know, it, it remove people's rights. So we don't have a place to put the people who are clearly mentally ill. And those two groups make up the lion's share of our homeless population. Mm-hmm. So if you take away those two mechanisms, now suddenly you're going to have a homelessness issue. And this is happening across the country because we're shifting away from the tools we used to have. We've decided it's not appropriate to incarcerate or to institutionalize these two different groups. Well, then you're going to find that you know probably 80% of the calls my son handles right now are related to homelessness. That never was the case uh, just one generation ago in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. But and- that's just, So we have to figure this out. How many times have you heard, Bill? We need sociologists and thinkers, counselors in place of law enforcement. I hear that all the time. I hear it all the time too. Well, I think this is, I always call this a one domino or a 10th domino issue. Law enforcement is not a one domino issue. Yeah, we agree with you. We agree that something is, is bad about culture that institutionalizes racism to a way, in a way that removes opportunities for people. We don't even, most of us who think about this will say, yeah, I can see that. But we are a 10th domino service. In other words, that's something you have to stop generations ago before we get to this point. Now, we hope that we can develop some systems or develop some ideologies now so that 20 years from now, we won't have a 10th domino problem 20 years from now. But today, we do have a 10th domino problem. It's falling, and you have to decide. You don't take a first domino approach at the 10th domino. 
Now what you're trying to do with the 10th domino is just protect people from crime. First domino issues are preventing people from committing crime, but that's not what police officers do. If that was the case, you would only hire. Look, there's a reason why we carry weapons, mm-hmm. right? Because so many times I'll, I'll look at the officer uh, down memorial page, the ODMP.com. You'll see that pretty much every week you're going to get notif- notified that another officer has been killed in the line of duty. Oh. All right, Jim, this is heavy stuff, but let me take a little break. We'll come back. Uh, Jim Wallace is my guest. You can learn more about him at coldcasechristianity.com. If you have a question about this conversation, text it over, I get to hang out with my friend Jim Wallace today. We're talking about policing and police matters and do the police still matter? And Jim, how can we respond to criticism of police officers as believers? What would be good well, good counsel? Yeah, I think it's you got to be just brutally honest. I mean, this is how you would respond to criticism of people at your church or your pastor. Let's be honest about what we do wrong and hopeful about what we do right. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, it's really easy. Like you, you just know that today across America, thousands of acts of kindness and, uh, and of, of, of moral interaction occur between police officers and the community, none of which will make the news. Um, and there's the problem. When you look at, for example, even the most uh, pressing, um, uh, obvious national acts you see on, on on media related to misbehavior, and you compare this to the number of calls that officers have to respond to on a daily basis and the number of, of self-initiated field activity contacts, right? This is when we are driving around and we make the initial contact. It's not that we're being called. You will see that the number of contacts with the public is unbelievable. And the percentage of things that go sideways is just really, really small. But I get it. Every time you you see something like that, it's a, it's a great cautionary tale for what it is we need to fix. Um, but, but at the same time, just remember what the limits are, right? The limits are going to be human nature. And what it is you think, here's a bigger problem we have. I think your agency at Minneapolis is about 200 officers down. Mm-hmm. Ours is about 70, 60 to 70 down. And no matter where I go, you'll find that that people are telling the same, the same thing. We can't hire. We can't hire anybody because, look, this thing never paid that well. What it did was it, it you had the respect of your community. It was a noble calling that people did in light of the, you know, despite the fact that you may not, you know, you're probably going to need two incomes in this culture in order to survive. Uh, but now what's happening is where they're thinking, why would I, there's lots of places built in the world and the, in the country right now where the amount of pay that's offered police officers is really low. The places in the small rural communities where you've got better options sometimes than working as a police officer. And they, those options don't come with liabilities, right? There is no, for example, um, uh, I don't know, Dr. Down Memorial page. You're not going to worry about losing your life. We're paid for risk. Mm-hmm. There is no teacher down Memorial page, right? I mean, right. 
So what we're doing is we're, we're being paid for risk. And as the risks grow, people are going to make assessments. Is there a better way to do this and better way to make a living? And so what I see is I don't see that turning. Uh, that's going to be a cultural change. Mm. And one of the things we can do, and I'm not a, you know me, I'm not a political person. I don't vote for candidates. I don't vote for people. I don't vote based on party. I vote based on priorities. And what I mean is, is that if that, this is what happened in Chicago, I mean, largely th- those folks turned out and voted for the, another candidate in the same party, but that candidate held different priorities when it came to the community and how it was going to be policed. And I think as we move forward, that's going to be the trick. Are you going to be willing to um, look at priorities now instead of your kind of classically ingrained party affiliations? And I think we're seeing that a lot. And that's really the answer as far as a kind of a, a, for, for police officers. Look, here's what I always say, that the pendulum always swings back and forth, right? Before 1993, we had really lenient state laws in California and then a young girl was killed and we passed three strike laws that then took the whole nation by storm. And those three strike laws made it easier to hold repeat felons for longer periods of time. And people felt like, well, you swung it too far. Well, now it's swinging back in response to that. And eventually it'll swing back the other way. So this does happen cyclically. And we had to be patient because it turns out if what you and I both believe about the necessity of law enforcement or order in a, in a, in a culture is true, that eventually it has to return to that because any experiment to the contrary will fail if what we think is true about the priority of law enforcement is actually true. Alternatives will fail. And we have to be patient during that period when they try the alternatives. But I, I honestly don't think that's going to change much. I think in the end it will. I do worry, though, that this pendulum is sitting on a table that is, is inclined in one direction. So it always swings out further on one side and doesn't quite come back to this side as much as it used to because the table is tilted. So we have to figure out how to untilt the table. Hmm. So, Jim, how are, how are they going to improve their hiring process if they're having trouble re- recruiting new officers? How are they going to what are they going to do differently? Well, I always said this when I was at my agency that we would often advertise on radio and television and we would do it this way. We would say, hey, we get great flexible hours, you get great vacations and we have a great benefit package. And I thought that's not the way to hire people. What's <laughs> going to happen when suddenly you're like the 10th worst paid agency in your county? It's mm-hmm. going to happen. You know, what's going to happen when you don't get your days off because you got somebody senior to you who bumped you for your vacation? That's going to happen. We shouldn't be advertising based on what's in it for you. Um, because this is a calling and, and we don't ever like saturate the, the, uh, Christian colleges and the Christian universities and say, Hey folks, you feel like you, God is calling you to something, some form of service. And a lot of times those young men and women think that it's going to be some form of ministry without seeing that law enforcement is ministry. Yeah. And, and if they saw that, then you know, a lot of us would say, I've often served in ministry capacities without being paid. Because I felt like this is my duty to to do this as God's calling me, and and so this is where I think you're going to have to return to this idea. There's there, there's still a body of people I believe that are out there that would do this for free because they feel called to do it, mm. and that's where I think we have to tap into those people. Yeah. So when you do ministry with the Billy Graham and you do these retreats and, and the couples come, what are you seeing with these marriages and some of the trauma that they're trying to process and how are they able to recover from this? 
Well, the, the, the worst thing I'm seeing is the the suspicion in culture about police officers. You know, in other words, now we are assumed to be the liar and not the truth teller. Wow. And so, and this is, I think it ha- there's a part of me that says, well, yeah, that's probably what is necessary from a legal perspective. Here's what I mean. If a police officer is involved in a shooting, he is immediately removed from interaction with any other officers. And he is assumed, he's interviewed now like a suspect. Like this guy didn't want to, pull, I mean, when you listen to these guys tell you their stories, they don't want to have to pull out their gun and, and fire at somebody, but they are put in a position where they had no choice. And now they're going to be investigated as though they were the suspect. They're not allowed to talk to it, about it to anyone as the internal affairs investigation proceeds. And and I think that if you, you recognize that if you're dealing with trauma, I don't care what kind of trauma it is, police trauma or otherwise, trauma in your marriage, the sooner you can express it, the better likelihood you're going to be able to grow beyond it. But if I can't, but I'm not allowed to express what I went through. So what we first do, the very first day we get them up there is we give them an opportunity to express it. Just let's just talk about it. Hmm. What happened to you? Because you're in a safe place. No one here is going to be testifying in the future at some civil service hearing. You know, this is a place where you can just tell us what happened and what how you processed it. And as you see that happening, you really do get a sense that that uh, that's a big healing uh, element that is really important to be in a safe environment where you feel like you can tell us what happened, what you went through. You'll, you'll see the guys who would never cry publicly anywhere will uh, break down and tell you how much it impacted them in that setting. And there's something so cathartic and healing about that, that it's an important part of the process. Mm-hmm. I would imagine, like you say, Jim, that's a critical component of processing. This is, is getting it out. Yeah, let me just say this one thing too. We talk about like, you know, if you imagine your life as a timeline and it's going along and your years are proceeding and then suddenly you hit a critical event, some trauma and it knocks you. Now your time, imagine that graph goes all the way to the bottom of the chart. You've mm-hmm. been knocked down. Well, then, you know, you could, if you stay down like that, we call that post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Where you stay down in that position. If you work with counselors and you find a way to return to your same level, the line was when you first began, we call that resiliency, the ability to return to where you were. But it turns out that if you do this well, you can actually get that line chart to go well above where you were before the trauma uh, even occurred. In other words, you can experience something that's beyond what you were experiencing even before the trauma. That's called post-traumatic growth. And the key between resiliency, just getting back to where you were, and post-traumatic growth thriving after a trauma is something that we recognize in social sciences as meaning-making. Hmm. can I make sense of what I experienced it and place it into my worldview in such a way that now I get it? And nothing does a better job of meaning-making after trauma than Christianity because it provides you, and it's constant in all the New Testament, that God is going to use this suffering for something that's going to be amazing and that he has your interests in mind, that he will turn whatever the evil is into something good. And that's what we have to help officers see is that, yeah, but this is why you might come up as a non-believer. But my hope is to make the case for Christianity while you're there and have you adopt a Christian worldview, because that's going to help you with that meaning making thing. Right. Because in the secular world, it could be any number of ways to make meaning of something. But in a Christian perspective, uh, it's really easy to embrace that God, you can see what the butterfly effect of was of your injury or was of the of the trauma you suffered because of all the good. Look, we've all done, these guys come up, they've, I've, I've done everything that they've done. I've experienced everything that they experienced. I hardly ever talk about 
But when we get up there, I want them to see that, you know, it turns out it, because I suffered through all of that, now I can help you mm-hmm. go through the same thing. And that's where you start to make meaning. The officers that go to this these retreats, are they all spiritually inclined uh, or are they believers or are they a mixture of both? A mixture of both. Okay. And so, you know, it's a, it is offered through, and you can find it on the BGEA website. If you just Google Billy Graham um, Evangelistic Association Marriage Retreat for Law Enforcement, you'll find our page. And so you'll go there and you'll see what this really is. But we, you know, if you're coming in that way, there's probably somebody who was a Christian, your spouse, maybe you. Uh, so we get a mixture of both. And we do a lot of baptisms up there. Um, we, you know, we, that's part of what we offer if, if somebody decides they want to get baptized up there. And it's in Alaska while we're doing it. I'm sure that some people just want to come because it's in Alaska, sure. right? Yeah, It's in this amazing location near Denali. Um, and so that might be a part of the impetus. But when we get there, it is like hands all hands on deck. It is very, very much um, focused on the resiliency of marriages. And we just we just we're just volunteers there. We're the, we're chaplains who serve there. We'll serve six weeks this year. We just volunteer. Um, so this is something that Susie and I can do because we feel like when we first got there, we thought, oh, we're going to be the fifth couple. We take four couples each week, mm-hmm. and we thought we're going to be the fifth couple. And I realized really quickly that I'm too old to be the fifth couple. I mean, these guys are my son's age. Mm-hmm. One guy said, "No, you're not like us. You're a cop papa." <laughs> I said, okay, yeah. okay. so that's that's where my role is, right? Yeah. And you realize that God has given you that experience so you can then move forward with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Did you baptize in Alaska in the summer? Yep. How, how cold is yep. the water? Oh, well, we do a polar plunge too. So one okay. day we'll do a polar plunge. So you are a little nuts. Jump in the water. Yeah, everyone has to jump in the water. But yeah, the baptism is like, we, we do as much as we can on the dock. Okay, <laughs> yeah. we're going to talk about and all that stuff. We're going to pray on the dock. Yeah. We're going to get in and do it really fast. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, it is cold yeah. for sure. Question that came in from a listener, Jim. Um, how can the church support our local police? Well, I think that that if you look at uh, Romans 13, you'll see that there's a description in Romans 13 about what uh, law enforcement authorities are. So let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. And it talks about how we are servants in this passage. And the word for servants is the same Greek word that talks about how they are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Well, servant in that context in the Greek is the word that's also used elsewhere for minister. So the church can help by realizing that this is a ministry. And and I'm sure there's probably police officers in every congregation. Maybe not enough to to group together to serve, but but consider that group as a ministry target, and that's what we started to do after we started volunteering here. And that's why I thought, you know, um, th- you reach this group differently um, than you would reach other groups because they are innately suspicious when they come up for the resiliency training. I tell you, they they are like, "What's the deal here? You're going to give us this for free? Really? We can't bring a gun." <laughs> they don't want, like they're not quite sure what they're stepping into, but right. their naturally in, uh, a, a suspicious nature causes them to have doubts. You know, is this going to be the real deal or not? So I think that that part of it is, you know, number one, understand what these guys go through. 
uh, and number and don't listen. And we're just there's just as much balance here, I think, as well. I, I don't think you should give too much uh, credence to to a, a group or not enough credence. You have to find balance there, because I think what happens is you see all the time. Well, yeah, you're seeing this as a white male police officer, and and that automatically vilifies you to entire bodies of people who think, well, this guy could never say anything true because of who he is. And so I think we have to be really uh, realistic that a, a Christian worldview that, it, that is blind to, to anything other than our identity in Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ mm-hmm. is super helpful here. Yeah. So when this the group comes up, I feel a kinship to them because they're police officers. But more importantly, we all ought to feel a kinship because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. And Jim, don't you kind of feel warm and 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 cozy being the papa cop to them isn't that just kind of a wonderful place in life yeah it, it is but i'll tell you it's exhausting i bet it is so so i'm usually about halfway through with the the the, the trip i'm like i'm just thinking but it's also so rewarding so so i yeah it's, it's a combination of both mm-hmm. and i and i do think this is um um an important uh, work because nobody's doing it really as a matter of fact i think i think bga is doing the best job of any group and that's why we serve with them yeah. uh, because we feel like they're doing the best job of any ministry out there serving the needs of police officers in this culture in which we live so so interesting jay warner wallace is my guest you can learn more about him at coldcasechristianity.com and the ministry that we're talking about is the blue the thin blue life.com the thin blue life.com we'll be right back Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. We're continuing our discussion on police work and police life. And at the thinbluelife.com, Jim, uh, you wrote an article about police officers being the bearers of bad news. It's really part of your job. You're under arrest. Your husband was killed in a robbery. We still haven't located your son. I'm writing you a speeding ticket. So when it comes to hearing about the good news, they might even have a hard time accepting that idea. You know, absolutely. I mean, think about this. I, I was talking to somebody. Uh, let's say you're somebody who, who you're a barber and 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 you are uh, your services are such, though, that instead of waiting for customers to come to you, you actually go out, let's say, to convalescent homes and you decide to give people haircuts. And these old folks are like, I don't want a haircut. Get away from me. But no, you <laughs> insist they need a haircut. Mm-hmm. So you give them a haircut. How many uh, favorable ratings do you think you're going to get on Yelp? Probably not many because, yeah. you know, you didn't ask for this. Here you are in my space when I didn't ask for this. And that's often what we have to do, right? Is we have to be in places where maybe somebody else called. And now I'm in this location and the person I'm addressing does not want me there and doesn't even understand why I need to be there. But uh, here I am. And this is the kind of thing that we face all the time. And so I think you have to be comfortable um, and thick skin. And a lot of our agencies, when we go through academies, they're constantly, they're military academies like like boot camps. Sure. That are, 
uh, putting you under pressure, stress, a lot of derision, you know, a lot of, you know, they're saying bad things to you. And the idea is, can you unflinchingly continue through the day? You know, one of the struggles we have as police officers, and this is, I think, important to keep in mind, is we all want, we all have signed up to voluntarily, sacrificially give our lives, if necessary, to serve our community. We hold that in one hand. In the other hand, we hold this desire to get home tonight to see my kids. Mm -hmm. And balancing those two duties, right, because I've got expectations from my family and expectations from my community, is what what he holds those is that you what you you only hold those because you believe that the person to whom you're indebted, the person to whom you have a responsibility, is worthy of the responsibility. I'm going to make sure I get home because I love my family. And what's happening on the other hand is that communities are no longer in love with their police officers. So have given the choice between these two things. Now I'm not people aren't probably not going to hold them in the same kind of balance they might have held them in before, because they don't feel the connection to the community that they still feel to their family. So if I got a choice, I'm going to get home tonight. I'm not going to, which, which will you choose? And it used to be that we always felt that equal tension. We're going to rise to the challenge. We're going to give our lives for our job because we signed up for that. And we know that you love us. We love you. You expect that of us. We want to give that to you. And when the relationship is broken in that way, then people start to question, well, why am I so devoted to something that'll take me away from my family forever? Mm, wow. And that's the challenge I think that most officers face. Mm-hmm. So if we want to find ways to show appreciation, what is, what's a suggestion for approaching an officer that we might encounter? Mm, I know they're probably suspicious of everyone that approaches them. So what are some, some ways we can be affirming? Well, I think one of it is just to be really patient with police officers. Here's why. If you run, when we stop somebody for speeding through a traffic signal, we're going to walk up on that car. There's one of two possibilities. You're just late for, for work or you're late to go home and you just, you know, miss the light. You rush through it. Or you're fleeing from a robbery you just did and you're trying to get out of the, out of the area. Those mm-hmm. are the two possibilities, one extreme or the other. When officers walk up on the car, they know from an officer safety perspective, it's far safer to take the second position and think, okay, something gets, so that first point of contact may be a little bit rough, you know, uh, put your hands on the wheel, you're, you're, you know, need you put your hands on the wheel. Why? I didn't do anything. I just put your, please put your hands on the wheel. Mm-hmm. Now, like you treat me like I'm a criminal. Yeah. You're probably right. Because this officer is competing with, you know, do your duty and get home at the end of the shift. Right. Those two things. Now, once he discovers that you're just late for work or late for coming home, uh, good communicators are able to communicate that. But not everyone we hire is a great communicator. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but honestly, because we're we're judging, we're balancing those two things. Can I get home at the end of the shift? And can I do my duty as a police officer? The best thing I think we can do for officers is just to be patient and understand that. In other words, rather than develop an attitude or a view of police officers that's based on any one experience, just kind of get have empathy, understand what it is they're going through. You we you want empathy to be displayed by officers. I do too. Mm-hmm. But we have to display empathy toward officers to try to get a ride along, for example, is a great way to learn what officers do. A lot of agencies don't do that anymore for civilians. They don't think it's it's wise. But um, if you can do that, that's helpful because it gives you a chance to see. It's not like it is on cops and all these other snippets of TV. You need to see what a full shift looks like before you get a sense of what it is we do. Mm -hmm. 25 years of doing this, Jim, do you recall specifically any... Uh, act of of kindness or love that somebody showed you that really kind of disarmed you? 
Um, yes, but it was not really in, in patrol. Okay. I think in patrol, you're, it was it was in detectives. I mean, okay. when, you, when you solve a crime for a family that has been waiting for justice for 30 years, they are grateful and yeah. you get the, you'd be the benefit of that. So a lot of us, as we get older and we move out of patrol into detectives or into other, uh, that's why we need to rotate people. Um, you, you get to experience what that feels like. And it's much nicer than constantly just being at a point of aggression with a person who didn't want you there to begin with, who is doing all they can to, to lie to you. Okay. That's, that's tough over a period of time. And I don't remember really having anything in patrol that I would ever have said was was really. I mean, I had some. Re- I worked gangs for two years, and I had great relationships with some of the street gangsters that I. There were kids at the time mm-hmm. that later on grew up and would contact us and say, "Yeah, I remember because you treated me that way, and I wow. was able to turn my life around." Wow, that kind of stuff is is helpful because it makes you realize, yeah, you know, maybe I took the right approach. But that's all hit and miss. You you learn as you do it. None of us yeah. do this perfectly any more <laughs> than we live the Christian life perfectly. Yeah. So so you make mistakes and you learn from those mistakes and you say, I wish I had a bunch more kids like that. Uh, but, you know, it's just, just the way it works. Yeah. Not to speak for your son, Jimmy, who's an officer right now, but how how encouraged is he in his job and his work right now? Well, because he's you know he's a Christ follower and he's contributing to all of our websites, so yes, a I lot of the stuff you see there is his work, right? And and because he had he's so rooted, and he, sometimes I feel like he's better rooted than I am. I, I I became a Christian. I was older than Jimmy when I first became a Christian. Mm-hmm. Jimmy's thirty four. I was thirty five. And I think that's hard for me to shake my pessimism, <laughs> even though I know better. Mm-hmm. But this is a kid who was raised as a Christian, and I think he's he's grounded better. And because he's grounded better, he has the ability to do that meaning-making thing we're talking yeah. about. Like, if this happens to me, God's got me. Yeah. And, I, and he's got something he's got for me, and I need to, to go through this in order to do the next thing that God has for me. I've heard him say things like that over and over again. And that helps you, I think, to kind of uh, struggle through any kind of trauma. Yeah, that's real, real encouraging to hear. And as always, Jim, thank you for spending time. I always look forward to our, our conversations every month. So thank you once again. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate you. You bet. Thank you so much. Jay Warner Wallace has been my guest. You can learn about his very powerful ministry at coldcasechristianity.com. You can also go to the thinbluelife.com just to learn more about uh, that ministry as well. All right, we'll take a little break and we'll come back with lots more. If hey, I don't know if you've downloaded the Faith Radio app. Go to your app store and check it out. I have to say, it's a, it's a beautiful app. I've got mine on my iPhone and uh, when you download it, you just can't believe how pretty it is. And you open it up, and it's uh, very easy to navigate your way through it. And you can listen to Faith Radio Live, or you can just uh, check out the podcast. It doesn't matter where you go. You can download if you've got that Faith Radio app. So give it a try. And if you don't like it, I, you know, it's easy just to delete it off your phone. But I'm pretty sure you'll keep it. All right, we'll take a break. Be right back with Hour 2. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.